2: Neil deGrasse Tyson grew up in New York and became interested in astronomy at nine years old. Since then, Neil has gone on to become a household name within the field of astrophysics, which has earned him the NASA Distinguished Public Service Medal, the highest civilian honor given by NASA and host of the podcast Star Talk. On this episode of the Carlos Watson Show podcast, Neil deGrasse Tyson recalls why he loves astrophysics, what his breaking big moment was, and his new book, Cosmo Queries.
3: Hey, Neil. It's Carlos Watson.
4: Hey, Carlos. Pleasure to meet you.
3: Yeah, same. Where are you in this uh, crazy, wonderful world? Oh, yeah. Well, I'm based in New York City, but right now I'm out on Long Island.
4: And so uh, I keep trying to stay safe.
3: Good. Good. Have you been healthy the whole way through, I hope?
4: Yeah. Thanks for asking. Yes, as has my whole family. So, and uh, our daughter was first out of the box there because she's a a uh, uh, high school school teacher and so they got teachers up early in the list uh, and so yeah so uh, I, I think we're staying healthy because we're uh, heeding the advice of medical professionals <laughs> what a concept
3: <laughs> <laughs> right, right crazy idea crazy idea uh, wait crazy. where's your daughter teaching uh, I'm the son and grandson of teachers so I'm always appreciative of uh, good teachers where uh, where's your daughter teaching
4: she's at the uh, MLK. Um, school complex in Midtown, just uh, uh, near and across from Lincoln Center. And that building houses several schools and as was the trend in recent decades to sort of decentralize large, impersonal, multi-thousand student high schools to smaller schools where each school has a principal that is then accountable for several hundred students rather than several thousand. So that's why they call it the MLK Campus uh, Housing Multiple School.
3: Interesting. And have you been on the campus there with her? What's the feel? Is it is it a good feel? No, no I
4: haven't. I haven't, but she's she, she's given us good um, good information about it. That that school was not built for a pandemic.
3: Right, <laughs> of course, right, of, of course, none of these right.
4: School room- None of the classrooms have windows to the outside, so you can't bring in fresh air. The windows they have open to a corridor that surrounds all of the buildings, and it's the corridor that has windows and none of those windows open. And so a lot of measurement had to happen with the air quality and the airflow uh, before anyone could
3: feel safe. And right now she's teaching primarily remotely. Oh wow! Okay, okay. And where did you grow up, Neil? Did I see that you grew up in New York City, or are you a New York City kid? Uh, yeah,
4: New York City, born and raised. All my formative years are in the Bronx, so totally homegrown.
3: And did and then uh, uh, did you wander away from the city at, at some point on your way to to becoming who you were, or or did you kind of stay in the city the whole way through?
4: Uh, only I off to college, so uh, college and graduate school. Um, I I went up to Boston to attend Harvard, majored in physics. Uh, Then I began graduate school uh, at the University of Texas at Austin, but then changed to Columbia. So I was back in Manhattan, back in New York City for the completion of the PhD. And then I left again to go to Princeton, uh, did a postdoc there, but then returned back to the city when the American Museum of Natural History decided it wanted to do something with the then- aging Hayden planetarium and so I agreed to come in and help that out and ultimately I was appointed to an endowed chair as director of the facility. So it so it, ha, it by the way that was my and that was my first night sky was the night sky of the Hayden planetarium because as a city kid no one in the city has any kind of relationship with stars or the Sun moon and planets because you look up and there's a building you look up a little higher there's like light pollution and when I grew up there was air pollution. And so it was all uh, forces operating against anyone's attempt to look up. And so the planetarium became my portal and my conduit to the cosmos at a very early age. So if you sort of package the whole story, it's like hometown kid comes back, you know, to lead the institution that so influenced him. And I try to tell that to people. and They just don't care. I think it works better in a small town than in a big town.
3: (laughs) (laughs) But no, but I, but I love the story though, because I was surprised. I don't know why I didn't expect you to be a New York city kid. And I don't know why I didn't put New York city together with science and the stars and the cosmos, uh, in the way that you done. Was was your dad, a, a scientist as well? Were you, were you kind of a second generation scientist or did you find your own path to the stars?
4: Yeah, it was my own path. My parents were – my father, he's degreed in sociology and he went on to work under Mayor Lindsay during the the heat of the civil rights movement and the assassinations. Uh, He was in city – he was a commissioner under Mayor Lindsay, a a commissioner that oversaw human resources and career development. And so – Uh, he was right where he needed to be to bring his expertise in a city that over that time did not burn. All right. Nobody writes news stories about things that don't happen. So, you know, there was Watts, there was, you know, Chicago and, and, you know, all these places across the country that were burning in 1967 and 68. And while there were some isolated sort of skirmishes with people in the police, um, you didn't have the all-out sort of 1960s rioting that occurred in other towns. And you know what's the anatomy of a riot? It's it's the last act of desperation for a person or a people who are left with no other options. Because no one wants to riot, but then you realize no one's listening, no one's doing anything about it, we've tried, we've gone through normal channels, nothing is happening, and it's a powder keg. So he managed to uh, diffuse whatever potential uh, powder kegs would have erupted simply by opening communication channels between the city government and city neighborhoods so that they felt like they had a, a stake in their future and that there was some hope right if you have hope then you don't riot right it's 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 the act of one who is hopeless uh, in their in their dreams and in their ambitions so uh, he was active there my mother was a housewife uh, by prior arrangement and she raised me and my brother and sister until we were mostly empty nest and then she went back to school by prior arrangement in their marriage and she went on and got a degree in gerontology and that was a new sort of field at the time so the people who study aging and and the needs and 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 wants of the elderly so my parents were both focused on supporting those in need and here's their son the astrophysicist so that was a little <laughs> weird right um, really? but uh, what I credit my parents for for doing or for not doing is you know, often you'll, you'll have parents, I don't know how often this is, but often enough that we all know people for whom this is true. Uh, they became a doctor because their parents were doctors and their parents wanted them to follow in their footsteps or conversely, they became a doctor because their parents couldn't become doctors and wanted to and they needed the children to, to complete the legacy or whatever. And so there was none of these pressures uh, in my household. But we were exposed to um, uh, things grown-ups do who love their jobs. And so each weekend, it felt like each weekend, it was probably only two weekends a month, uh, the five of us went on trips to, to the, the area museums, the, the aquarium, the, the art museum, the science museum, the natural history museum, the planetarium. But we also went to sporting events, you know, baseball, football, even hockey, uh, and uh, also uh, the opera, Broadway, uh, musicals. So we got to see, we got to broaden the options that you might imagine you might become when you grow up by seeing adults as experts in these multiple fields. So my brother, in fact, ended up as an artist, and he teaches up in Saratoga, he also uh, uh paints. And so and he illustrated two of my books actually. <laughs> so that that's just kind of fun. Um and uh so my sister she went into finance. Um but the nonetheless uh, we say oh she went into finance to make money. Oh I feel sorry for. <laughs> <laughs>
3: uh
4: but she but but the regardless there the, there were no household pressures in the way that um uh, may lead people to choose careers that where their heart isn't necessarily in it. And so I can say without hesitation that my heart has been
3: in the universe uh, ever since I was nine years old. And, and what happened at nine? Was it, a, was it a book? Was it a movie? Was it a friend? Was it a trip to? Uh, great.
4: I, I'm, I love that list you're giving because I am influenced by books and especially by movies. I'm a big movie fan, uh, especially science fiction movie fan. I'm a little ashamed that I, I can't join the ranks of people who have walls of science fiction books. I say, "Oh, well, I saw that movie and this movie," but how about all the rest? And I'm sorry, I, I'm sorry, I'm less of a of a of a novel reader than I am a moviegoer. But I nonetheless enjoy a brilliantly told, brilliantly conceived, and brilliantly told story. The, uh, but my, the, the, singular sort of turning point was a trip to the Hayden planetarium family trip when I was nine years old.
3: What were you like as, as, a, as a kid here? Were you a quiet kid loving the planetarium? Were you a loud kid who, who put his energy into this? What, give me a little picture. Give me a little color on young Neil.
4: <laughs> yeah, I was, um, I didn't figure out sort of who I was until third or fourth grade. Um, And what I mean by that is, you know, I'm very sociable. I like hanging out with people. Um, I liked being popular. That wasn't so much a goal, but a consequence of being sort of socialized. So, so, but it also got me to think about people. and, And I had, I've always, I was always geeky. I liked geeky things. I liked puzzles. I liked math. I liked, um, You know, as early as I could, my first telescope was when I was 12. It was a gift from my parents once they saw my interest that had germinated from age nine. Within a couple of years, I outgrew that and I walked dogs for a living 50 cents per dog per walk. Builds very quickly, by the way. If you'd run the math on that, because dogs have to poop a lot, it turns out. So, <laughs> um, and by the way, that was the the glory days of dog walking before the pooper scooper laws were in place. So you just the dog would poop, you just keep walking. You wouldn't even break a stride, you know. You keep walking, and someone <laughs> right. else would step in it. So uh, those were days long ago. But the uh, I used that to buy my first sort of telescope, quote backyard telescope, but my backyard was the roof of my apartment building in the Bronx. So so um, o- over that time, it's, but I was geeky, but I was also bigger than most other kids. There would be like in a class of 35 people, 18 boys, there might be one boy taller than I was or bigger, maybe one out of the 18. So I was bigger than average. Uh, and right now I'm not crazy. I'm 6'2". Not big enough to say, "Hey, you should play football." No, I'm not that. But growing up, I was a, maybe I was a year more physically mature than others, and that gets you a few extra inches there. I say that only because carrying geek credentials, but still being bigger than most other people, I was able to observe the conduct of sort of the popular sort of um, athletes. You know, the the, the 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 we didn't have football, but the 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 characteristic football jock who would just go and slam the you know the the, the nerds into the into the lockers would give him a wedgie i was i was i was enough to feel what the the geek nerd set was feeling but i had the ability to defend myself and to defend them when the time arose so as is true for many kids when I was growing up, we, we all wanted to be a superhero. Well, what superhero did you want to want to be? I wanted to be one who protected geeks, so I'd be Geek Man. Okay, <laughs> so you might put a, put a you know like the not the bat signal in the clouds, but maybe some digits of pi, right? And I would look up at night and I'd have a cape and I'd say, "There's a geek in trouble." <laughs> I have to go, I have to go fly to where they are. So these were sort of my fantasies um, of the time, uh, and because I didn't want people taking advantage of those who could not defend themselves, so so I, I was a geek, a total geek, credentials, but I, but I didn't read as a geek um, to others just because I was bigger. And later on, I would I would study martial arts and and take up wrestling. So I was I was I was pretty physically able to defend myself and others if I saw the need.
3: What were your years at Harvard like? Did you did you enjoy it? Uh, uh, were you a fish out of water? Was it the perfect place for you? What were your years at Harvard like in the uh, late 70s?
4: Yeah, that's a great question. So let me so back that up just a little bit. Uh, in the early 70s, there was the 72 maybe. It probably started earlier, but my awareness kicked in in the early 70s where there was extensive social and cultural unrest because of busing school busing in multiple places, in multiple cities. And it especially hit Boston. There is a Pulitzer prize winning photo of a, a man, a father of a child, brandishing a, an American flag. Some of this happened at the recent riots at the Capitol, brandishing an American flag An American flag, usually some pointy thing at the top. And he's like, waving it attacking black children and their parents coming off of a bus as part of the school integration plan and it was like oh my gosh you know this is it's not a bottle it's not a stick or baseball bat it's an american flag that they're and it's like okay this happened in boston so boston was an entirely unwelcoming city for anyone particularly certain neighborhoods for anyone uh, uh, that uh, any kind of skin color, darker than loose leaf paper. And I felt it walking the streets. I mean, there was not a week would go by. No, I'd say three days would go by before someone just in the street would just call out the N-word or or toss something at me. And so, but by the way, none of these examples, those and others I could give, compare to the stories my parents told me. Growing up in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, coming out of Jim Crow—not that they were in the South—but my father ran track, and when if you're on a track team and you travel, you you go south of New Jersey, and you're in the South, okay? Yeah. And there's a different entrance for you, and a different uh, um, uh, restaurant uh, menu, and different um, lodgings. So their stories told to me not in a bitter way, but just in a the country needs help sort of way, um, it 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 calibrated me, that's the word, it calibrated me for how to see and receive what I saw. Because if I internalized it, I'd just be dead, right? You can't absorb this because it's too much and it's th- the sum of the hate and the resentment is too large to bear. So you you develop defenses where it deflects off of you or you duck or you... To go around it. I'm speaking metaphorically of course. And so so that was the climate. and so I was only really sort of safe from that on the Harvard campus, among others. the moment I stepped off campus, I'm on guard the whole time. Okay, uh, what was Harvard like? Um, I didn't really care that it was Harvard. I know that sounds weird. Um, all I cared was that the school I went to had an excellent astrophysics program. And how did I determine that? You didn't ask, but I'll tell you because it will matter as an answer to your question. Uh, in high school, I had subscribed to Scientific American, and those are articles written by scientists, not journalists. So they don't pull any punches there. They got to go in with a complicated sentence with jargon, it's in your face, all right? And, you're, you're, and it's slow reading, especially if you're outside of your field. I found the biology articles a little slow reading because there's so much, so many big words that mean things and they might even define them up front, but then there's a sentence with six words in a row and I I need a glossary to keep up with it. So my favorite parts of that magazine were part, was called About the Authors. And there it was. And every author, and if there are multiple authors of an article, all of them are represented. And it gave their name where they are on the faculty at that time where they got their PhD, where they got their master's, and where they got their undergraduate degrees. This is a perfect data set where I said to myself, if I want to be an important enough scientist to be able to write for Scientific American, then maybe let me see what kind of tracking the scientists had who wrote physics and astronomy articles. Okay, so I I kept it local to the field. And so I laid out a list. I still have this piece of paper. It's not with me in this moment, but I made a grid... Of all the colleges I was accepted to. And I'm delighted it was more than one. So, this is, you know, I'm not asking for sympathy here, but there's multiple colleges. And I just made a checklist who got the, how many got their PhD from that institution, their undergraduate, their master's, and this. And by the time I was done, Harvard was three to four times longer in the checklist than any other school I had accepted to. And so it was like I'm going to Harvard. I don't care that it's the oldest college or it's fancy or that oh you go to Harvard. I didn't give a rats if this table said go to Tougaloo Tech, then that's where I would have been because my cosmic ambitions were so deeply embedded, that was my priority. And so so I went. And so I didn't I I didn't really care about the Harvard legacy. It just didn't matter to me. Um I lived in what's called the quad, where in a in a dorm that's not ivy-covered, all right, you know, there's all the culture and the smoking rooms and the the, the upholstered chairs and the back. You know, I didn't know. No, I just, I, I didn't care. And oh, why did I live in what was called the quad? Because that was across the street from the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. And I'd roll out of bed, and there I am in the center of it all.
3: You you loved this thing, Neil. You you loved it. You loved it like Kobe loved basketball. You loved it like Chelsea Handler loved comedy. You like you're you're telling me this was all the way through you that you were because it's interesting because I I did get a chance to talk to Kobe before he passed years ago and you could just tell how much he loved basketball and loved it from the time he was a kid and his stories about basketball. Uh, and his love of basketball how much he studied and he was the kind of person who would choose a dorm because it was across the street <laughs> from a gym that might say open until 4 or open at 6 and when we had Chelsea Handler visit us she said she loved comedy like that that she was just um she was just into it with a level of kind of depth and intensity and so that's interesting so 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 you almost like the song says you've been loving this so long you've you've been loving uh You've been loving the cosmos a long time.
4: Yeah, and you need that—that that love accumulates, and I think of it as a fuel tank, where you need energy sort of to overcome challenges. Where if things get hard, do you still have the energy and the ambition to move through, jump over the hurdles of which there are always many, particularly uh, in an academic field? You know, it's not like you know if you go on for a PhD. There are things that are not just a given that would happen. There are things that you are working towards it. And then there's sort of, did you get the right advisor? And did the, the project work out on time? Will you get the degree on time? Or is it still taking data? Is that, there's a Things complexify rapidly as you go from undergraduate up through higher degrees. So um, I, I would constantly need to reference this fuel tank that had been with me and had been stoked really since I was nine years old. So yes, yeah, you asked why it's what I thought of Harvard. I I deeply embraced its legacy in astrophysics and that's why I was there.
1: This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global.
3: Why do you love astrophysics so much? What is it about astrophysics that got that boy at nine in the Bronx and still had him captivated at 20 in Cambridge and clearly today still has him, you know, uh, immersed in, and seemingly in love? What, what is it about astrophysics that that, that captures you?
4: I, I have, a, I have a, a weak answer and I have a strong answer for you. So my weak answer is um, I think I was – At age nine, when I looked up at the dome of the planetarium and the stars came out, and at first I thought it was a hoax, there aren't that many stars in the night sky. I know there's 14 of them. I counted from the roof of my building in the Bronx. So don't lie to me like this. And then you realize, oh my gosh, this is what the actual night sky looks like. So that first encounter with the cosmos, with the planetarium serving as a conduit, um, I – so my weak answer for you is that I think the universe called me and I had no say in the matter, okay? That's the – well, I say it's a weak answer because that has no – there's no rational content to that, to that, to that response, <laughs> okay? Uh, I don't really believe that, but it's fun to feel that that's true, all right? It absolves me of having to answer your questions, right? It was like, what did it? So um, – but I um, – really, it was looking up into that – projected night sky, seeing the immensity of it and realizing, oh my gosh, there's still so much to learn, so much to discover. I want to be on that frontier. I want to be pushing that frontier with my own, uh, on my own efforts and my own uh, creativity uh, so that I can contribute to our understanding of our place in the universe. So it was the immense mystery of it all that attracted me. Now, frankly, Immense mysteries don't attract everyone. Some people are frightened by them, and they have to have an answer. In fact, this feeds a lot of religions, right? It's like, oh my gosh, I'm so small, that's so big. What does it all mean? Oh, God gives meaning to it. Okay, well, where did it all start? Well, God in Genesis. So, so there are many sort of religious philosophies that tidy up those endpoints for you. Um, and when I die, what happens? Well, you, there's heaven. Okay, so now, but I, I'm instead as is true for most, if not all, scientists, you are attracted to the ignorance of it all. Uh, ignorance is, sounds blatant. You're attracted to the unknown and rather than fear it. And this gets me to a quick point that you didn't ask, but um, how often have you read a news article? You have journalism in your, in your training, right? <laughs> so how often do you read a news article that says, uh, oh, this new result will have to send scientists back to the drawing board. All right, that's like opening sentence, and that gets the reader in. Well, what image are they trying to paint? That we're all just sitting back with our feet up on the desk, basking in our mastery of the universe? No, if you're doing that, you're not an active scientist. If you're you're an active scientist. You don't leave the drawing board, okay? You are always at the drawing board. Don't tell me, oh, we'll have to go back to it. No, We excuse me, no, no. Ask any scientist, what do you love most? And they say, it's that I don't understand this and I'm working on it. So um, you, you must learn to love the questions themselves.
3: Which scientist do you admire the most, either alive or, or dead? Uh, yeah, generally when we use the word admire,
4: it references a person's total character and personality. Or I admire them like you want to be them. I long ago I stopped doing that, and I I I parse parsed parsed people into components, and so I didn't have a role model, which is what so often people seek. I had pieces of people that I sort of stapled together so that my role model was a la carte. There was a scientist who had such command of cosmology and just the universe in general. And I said, when I'm a scientist, I want that level of command. And there was an educator who had such a way with words and maybe want to just keep listening. And their storytelling was magnificent. I said, if I'm an educator, I want that. And there was an athlete who kept hitting home runs. And as a kid, you know, you always want to be a baseball player. I said, if I were ever a baseball player, I want to hit home runs like that athlete. I didn't say I want to be that athlete because I get busted for cocaine. That, that wouldn't even matter. I want to just be that, to have the talent that they expressed. And so you put that together. So for me, the, the in answer to your question, my favorite scientist is Isaac Newton for what he achieved very quickly in his lifetime, what he wrote, how he thought. If you read his writings, this man was connected to the cosmos. It, his very questions, he would say things like, hmm, I wonder if the stars in the night sky are just like our sun, but just they're so far away, they look like points of light. He's just, he's just wondering this, okay? And, and yes, it's true, <laughs> all right? So he reminds you that just because you can ask a question, putting nouns and verbs in the right sequence, doesn't mean you asked a good question. Or I should say that differently. Just because you composed a question doesn't mean that question has material relevance to what's actually happening in the universe. And I joke with people, here's a question. Um, at what temperature does the number seven melt? Or what is the square root of a pork chop? Okay, You can ask those questions. They are legitimate English language constructs. But if you're going to devote your life to trying to answer them, you're not, you will not be Isaac Newton. So it's not good enough to be good at answering questions. You want to also be good at posing them as well. And, and on the frontier, you don't even know necessarily in advance if you've asked a good question. You say, what kind of cheese is the moon made out of? Is that your question? Okay, so now you develop all these experiments. It's going to check for, for Roquefort. And for, <laughs> for Emmentaler and for Gruyere and for – you're going to test for these different cheese and none of them will come through because the moon is not made of cheese to begin with. And so <laughs> um, th- those are absurd examples, but on the frontier, you actually don't know. So Isaac Newton is, is my man. By the time he was 26, he like discovered the laws of optics and gravity and invented calculus. By the time he was 26, for goodness' sake! Now, of course, back then they didn't have HBO at night to distract you from, <laughs> or Netflix, <laughs> so he probably had way more time on his hands to think
3: uh, and, uh, and to think constantly. I love that. I didn't realize he'd done all that. Uh, uh, I didn't realize he'd done all that by 26. Um, Neil, when did you break big? You know, on the, on this show, we're always talking about dreaming fearlessly and what people have learned and what their path is has been. How did you? How did you break through? How did you? Because when I think about scientists who are household names in America today, there are like really very few scientists who are household names. How did you break big as a person who was at the center of that story?
4: Yeah. So um, most of what you see of me in the world today was never my goal. I never. I didn't start out saying I want to be a famous. Scientist, I want to be a good scientist. I want to make discoveries, like any scientist who's coming up in the ranks. Uh, I want to be able to publish research papers. So those were my goals, and I would have been perfectly happy if no one knew my name other than colleagues who cared about the work that I did. What started happening was, especially being based in New York City, where it's a, it's a news gathering headquarters, one of the biggest such places of the world. Um, there's always something cosmic happening. You know, it was an eclipse. Uh, Pluto gets demoted, we discover a new planet, there's a black hole, and so the and this it has very high public appeal stories in my field. And and none of us in my field take that for granted. So we we tend to be have a little extra socialization because the public and the press comes to us when these events happen. So in New York City, they came to the head of the planetarium. They didn't know me from anything, but I had title. So they'd come and I'd give them a good sound bite. Okay. And, th- and they say, oh, the producer would say, Oh, let's let's get more of that guy that who's heading the planetarium. And they'd come back and they send the action cam and they'd they would do this. And I say, Oh my gosh. So I'm feeding them what they like, and the science is spreading around through their vessels, not my vessel. Oh, yeah, I'm at a museum, but they they broadcast to millions of people. And so so I thought to myself, this is a good way to just sort of share my love of science. As Carl Sagan said, when you're in love, you want to tell the world. And so that grew. And by the way, it grew steadily. Your question did not apply to my answer. Because your question was, when did it break big? Like, like an actor who's discovered, you know, at the cabaret overnight. And it, No, no, no. Okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> When when I was in graduate school, and I gave uh, the help sessions to classes uh, before the next exam, um, they were very heavily attended. Like more people attended my help sessions than the main lecture given by the professor, uh, and so this got written up in the campus newspaper. Um, people go to Tyson's sessions because they're fun and interesting, and you learn. And they, so so I did that for several years. And many people have local jobs to get them through college. No matter what bar I ever went to, there was someone at the bar who was one of my ex-students. <laughs> I got free drinks all the time. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it, was, it was an interesting, because at the time, the town was not very large. Um, and so, um, so, yes, I was written about back then. But was that a break? No, it was just a local thing. But this was a steady ascent. And then when you do that same thing in New York City, that's a bigger audience. And then it transcends from, from the evening news to uh, talk shows or to documentaries. And I get interviewed for those. And so this, it's a slow build. And then there's social media uh, kicks in. All right. And that's when we en- enter the 21st century and you have social media. And so I go on to social media and you can look at my following in social media from the beginning until now. And it's just a steady growth. There's no, even when I hosted Cosmos in 2014, um, the first time since Carl Sagan in 1980, there's a little bump up in the following, but then it just continues as sort of the same slope as before, maybe a little higher slope. So, no, there was no overnight. Um, and I'll, I, a quick example is I was once interviewed for the NewsHour okay this is the mcneil lair news hour i think after um, um, uh, mcneil had died so so jim lair news hour and i'm i'm talking about something in the in the universe and i got email this i had been on in 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 the in the other evening news and on documentaries and i al- already had a following and so i get email from people who said uh Oh, uh, Dr. Tyson, uh, we thoroughly enjoyed your interview. And they're using bigger words that are normal. And this is like the PBS crowd. (laughs) It was clear they were more educated than anybody else watching television. All right. That's because the the sentences use web. That's an SAT word right there. Okay. Um, So so they said, I had somebody literally said this. They said, um, oh, you were uh, quite uh, amazing on that interview. You know, you should be on TV more often. (laughs) It was like. So I'm thinking, you must never look at any other channel on television because I am on TV all the time. You're just only watching PBS. That's your problem. Okay. So they thought they were doing me a favor by saying I should be interviewed more often. So um, that was a but I, I make fun of that, but it's it's a reminder of how stovepiped people are, continuing to this day. If you only show up on liberal media, no one in conservative media even knows you exist and vice versa. So uh, this is, of course, um, fed the tribalism that was so rampant uh, in recent years in this country. So anyhow, no, uh, that's my long answer to your very simple question. When did I break big? No, it was a, it was a slowly rolling ball up the hill. And I think it's still rolling, but yeah. Interesting, because
3: I've had folks. But, like-
4: but that also means that I could. I'm sorry. That also means that I was able to to respond smoothly to the growth of fame. Okay, so I can quantify it. It was there was a time it was one person a week would recognize me in the street, a stranger. Then it was five a week. Then it was two a day. You know, and and so that's a steady growth. And so I was able to see how to respond, how to – so there was none of this, oh, you know, uh, overnight things. And I I wouldn't have had it any other way because I don't know how I would have reacted otherwise.
3: That's so interesting to hear you say that because I have had people on like Mike Greenberg, the ESPN anchor, uh, who said that for him it was when he was hosting his radio show and David Letterman became a fan – and he started going on Letterman, and he said for him, for Fareed Zakaria, literally said after 9-11, there was a week there where he said his life changed. And that in a short window, there were lots of news outlets that wanted someone who was here in the States, was Muslim uh, American, and, uh, and who could speak to the variety of issues that were going on. And he said it kind of took off. But that's interesting to hear you talk about a more gradual uh, ascent and the opportunities that that afforded you
1: Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu.
2: Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but, like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that?
3: Talk to me about Cosmic Queries. Uh, uh, why did you write it, and uh, and and what for you was the most interesting part of writing that book? Because I'm always curious. Once you've done all of that work, does it feel a little bit of um, um, not a, not a letdown? But but I'm always interested in what remains intriguing to you, given that I know a lot goes into you know that whole process.
4: Yeah. Well, thanks for asking. So uh, the book Cosmic Queries is the sort of printed spin-off if you will of a one of the formats of my podcast which is called Star Talk and in that podcast um, it inverts the the journalistic model where you, know, you might think of a a science program where the journalist interviews scientists every week this inverts that where I'm the scientist and I'm the host and I interview people hewn from pop culture and the conversation explores all the ways that science has touched their lives so that you, who are either a fan of that person following them to the show, or you just live, live in your life in this world, you learn not about science not as its own destination, but science as something that's fundamental to who we are and what we call civilization. And so one of the more um, popular formats of that show is called Cosmic Queries, where um, If if we solicit questions from our fan base and if we're soliciting sort of uh, astronomical questions, then it's just me and my co-host who's a professional comedian, by the way. The comedian is there to offer a force of levity to balance the force of gravity of the scientific content. And so the valve that, that you turn to balance that enables a consistent delivery from show to show to show. And so, and so, um, so with Chelsea Handler, I've been on her show a couple of times. Um, I, I know it's, she comedy is so deep within her. She almost she can't have a thought without having there be a comedic angle on what it is she then tells you. Right. And so you know it's in deep yeah. when it when <laughs> the, the, the germination of the thought is <laughs> <Right>. itself comedic. <laughs> right. So right. I, so I know that people learn better. They learn more when they come back for more. If you smile when if something made you smile upon having learned it. So, in the format, if it's just sort of astronomical, it's just me and my co-host. If it's on another topic like COVID, I'll bring in a COVID expert. And then we answer the questions from the public. And it's fun because the comedian gets in and we have fun with the guests and it's uh, and there's learning, there's pop culture, and there's the science of that and 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 the humor that we try to find even in topics uh, that are difficult. And so we realized some questions to Cosmic Queries are deep and philosophical and would require like the whole show just to answer. We collected those, and they form the, the foundation of this book, 10 chapters, and each chapter is some of the deepest questions anyone has ever thought to, uh, to contemplate in this world. Like, How did it all get here? How did it all begin? Where is it all going? How do we know that that's what's happening? How will it end? What is our place in the universe? Is there life in the universe? These questions are addressed in the same spirit that those questions are fielded and and conducted in the program itself. And it was it's fun and it's actually sprinkled with some of my tweets because I tweet on much of this content. And so the tweet is like a reward. You got this for far okay. I'm throwing a tweet for you. So uh, on this chapter on the accelerating expanding universe, there's a tweet that relates to that. And and by the way, these are tweets I put out anyway and they just happen to relate. So we put them in. It's uh, I I put this out over the summertime during the baseball season. It's um you can't blame the umpire's expanded strike zone. On the expanding universe,
3: <laughs> you can't do that. <laughs> so it's
4: just a little thing, uh, you know. Just again, it, they're just sort of treats to, to get you moving through the book. But it's a it's a big, solid book, and it's uh, published by National Geographic uh, Press, National Geographic Books, which which means you know it's it's beautifully laid out, and the photographic imagery. There's even some artwork in there, not always just relying on a, photo, a scientific image. Some artwork evokes the ideas, and the book is it handles the science, the philosophy, and even spirituality of some questions that um, people have addressed. So there it is. Thank, thanks for giving it mention.
3: No, I, I, I love that, and I love the way that you integrate, as you said, pop culture unexpected people and personalities and everyday events with these kind of big uh, questions. Um, I want to try a little something I like to call rapid fire, kind of my version of Cosmic Queries, not quite, but uh, uh, but I'm going to call it rapid okay. fire. And, and, and <laughs> it's I'm
4: allowed. Like, wait, wait, is it rapid fire because you're asking short questions or is it rapid fire because you're expecting me to give short answers?
3: Uh, terrific. Uh, uh, short answers, but what I love about you is that you always have your Isaac Newton on, which is you're always querying the query. I love that. I could tell that, that that you're someone who's always asking upfront, are we asking the right question, which is important, uh, and I I, I appreciate. Uh, let's do some, I can sound like yeah, my, my yeah, answers. Right. Let's bring it on. All right, because you reference HBO before, I have to ask you, what's your favorite TV show?
4: Uh, ever? ever Favorite show ever, yeah, ever. Uh, The Twilight Zone, by far. The storytelling, the acting, the cinematography, the the fact that they're all sort of short stories with a twist at the end, um, I thought it's the best television ever made, not only at the time, but even ever since.
3: Wait, you're going back to your boy Rod Serling, or you're doing the more uh, more recent version?
4: All the way, all the way, 19, late 50s, early 60s, Rod Serling, but whatever, six seasons of it, yes.
3: You you know what? That is quite a provocative and thoughtful response because normally when we talk about the best TV show of all time, in truth, I'm really thinking about 1980, 1990 onward. And in my mind, that's not even a competition. It's The Wire. But I I think you make a legitimate argument on behalf of Twilight Zone. I have not heard that. That, That's a good one. That's a good new entry. That's a good new entry.
4: Well, if you pick any episode... Yeah the uh, the the and again this is no longer rapid fire if we're d- <laughs> discussing it but but in the twilight zone it dealt with topics that were pre- that prevailed but you might be uncomfortable if the story was talking about you so the stories talked about aliens or just or it's just some sci-fi story it's just a story out there oh wait a minute that person gained too much power and was abusing it. Oh, wait a minute. That person thought the robot should take over and that didn't end well. Oh, wait a minute. That person's idea of what is beautiful is not universal. And all of a sudden, you mirrors get held up. And you realize that you start understanding yourself and your place in our civilization a few, all that more deeply for having been exposed to the storytelling of the original Twilight Zone. So, uh, yeah, I still feel that way, and I've always felt that way.
3: Uh, favorite place you've ever been?
4: Uh, a geographic place or a place that humans have created?
3: Uh, loving that, and I'm taking both.
4: Both? Okay. Uh, favorite place uh, I've ever been is the, the summit of Cerro Tololo Observatory uh, that's in Chile, where I did – I gathered the data for my PhD thesis and if you're there and it's high enough so that it can be above some low-lying clouds and if there's a if there's a quarter moon out let's say there's just enough light to illuminate the top sides of the clouds and there you are on an island looking to see other uh, other mountaintops dotted through the clouds in the Andes and you feel like you're in the middle of, of of i don't know some magical place communing with the cosmos and it's quite solitary you can hear the crunching under your feet of the pebbles as you walk and that solitude and that peace and that um the simplicity of just this spot on earth that gets me a little bit closer because of my instruments to the universe uh, i think about those pilgrimages often. And just in terms of uh, uh, country, uh, I haven't been everywhere, but of the places I've been, Iceland was just amazing. We filmed there for Cosmos. And you walk 20 feet, there's a geyser. Another 20 feet, there's a hot spring. Another 20 feet, there's snow. Then there's, and it's like, oh my gosh. In this little island, we got all of the creation of Earth (laughs) (laughs) just in this one spot. just turn your camera oh well that's that's that was like a a 100 that was 4 billion years ago that's what what earth was doing that and so it made it very useful for filming for cosmos Uh, one-stop shopping so those are the two places
3: and now are you a local kind of airbnb guy do a little staycation thing do you have any little fun spots near you that sometimes you'll get away for a day or two or three do you ever do that kind of stuff
4: No, because I don't view getting away as something that's not a thing for me. Uh, Being in the moment, wherever that moment is, that works. And for me, getting away is reading a good book or watching a a good movie on a big oversized TV screen. So I don't need to physically get away to get away. Uh, And so no, I don't even think that way.
3: Spirituality and religion, do you consider yourself a religious person?
4: No, no. Based on all of what I've seen religions say about themselves, no. I don't don't find myself drawn to them. I know many people are. It gives fulfillment for so many people for so long, right? For thousands of years. So religion long predates science as we have come to practice it. So it's clearly something deeply going on between the concept of worship of some entity beyond yourself and what it is to be human. Otherwise, you wouldn't see the prevalence of it uh, uh, all around the world and all throughout time. Um, So no, I don't, but I do, when I look up at the night sky, I find myself saying things and feeling things that deeply. I've heard deeply religious people say and feel. I, I can say, here's a sentence. This sentence has come out of, on that mountaintop, I look up and I bask in the majesty of the universe and all of its splendor and grandeur. And so I have these sort of emotional moments Shall we call them spiritual? I don't have a problem. The spirit is, I think it's from Latin or Greek for with breath. Your spirit is, you know, spirit is the measure that you're alive, that you're breathing. And so, so, um, so perhaps there's some sort of overlap in emotion that a religious person feels that I feel when I embrace the universe. So, um, yeah, so my only issue with religion, not that you specifically ask, is if your religion and your holy documents typically written long ago um tell you something about the physical world that is objectively false. And in a free country, you can believe that for sure, but to require that someone else believes it that is uh, so to put that in a classroom or to put that or to rise to power and then legislate that um, that is not honoring and respecting the fact that we have faculties of reason and the methods and tools of science to decode what is or is not objectively true in the world. And so um, you know you don't see scientists picketing, not even atheists picketing outside of churches or synagogues or mosques or any other place of worship saying that might not necessarily be true that that doesn't happen. But you, but you see sort of religious, um, deeply religious fundamentalists trying to change school curriculum and trying to, and so the, that's not an even, that's not the two-way street I would want to see in a country where you have free expression of religion. Free expression means it's free for you to express it. Um, but to try to require that someone else thinks or feels that way, that's a different kind of country if you think it through if you're going to force your religion on someone else that's not the United States of America
3: um all right i got to i got to finally end with asking you about interesting scientific discoveries that the most that average people probably are missing out on what are two or three things when you talk about spreading scientific knowledge that you hope that those of us who are everyday people that we may have missed, but interesting things that have happened over the last year, last few years that you think we should know about and could ultimately impact our lives, our understanding, our love, et cetera?
4: That's a great question. I and I'm I'm happy to report that very little science goes by today without a, a, a an inquisitive journalist jumping in, jumping in the pen and writing about it. So I didn't have to twist anybody's arm to make headline news out of the fact that NASA just landed on Mars or that the United Arab Emirates and China also landed on Mars in the last few weeks. So I'm there really to tie a bow for you on this knowledge that is that has tremendous access points to the public, primarily through an open internet. So I don't think you're missing anything. Uh, what I would say is um, there's not so much discoveries but uh, consider how much of your life depends on space right now. You're probably not thinking about that. Um, the, from hailing an Uber or Lyft, uh, how do you get that? Oh, well, you just sent a signal to a satellite that gave your coordinates relative to a nearby car. Some clever people wrote software to find the nearest car to you. That information that gets transmitted, and you just walk into a car with the bill already paid. Like, oh, my gosh. That's life today. Well, that's space today. All right, that's one economic extreme. Another one is, oh, let me swipe right, okay? And who is that person? That's someone who a GPS satellite has established is within three blocks of you. Oh, is there a bar nearby? Okay, let's find that. So, so much of people's lives today are enabled and empowered by space. So that when I hear someone say, why are we up in space when we have problems here on Earth? we got to solve the earth problems first. And I've said this many times and maybe it's not enough. Let's go back 30,000 years and we're all in the cave, okay? And someone peeks out the front door of the cave and sees a mountain, a valley, a hill, a stream, and it tells the people, I want to go out there and explore this and no, we have cave problems. We have to solve the cave problems first. Before you exit the front door, okay? If, so you saying, we got Earth problems, let's solve the Earth problems, before we step off of this speck we call Earth into the vastness of the universe. And if that's what you're saying, you sound like that person in the cave to me. Uh, to believe that all of our answers can be found on this third rock from the sun, when the vast greater universe lay undiscovered before us, Um, is naive at best and it's dangerous at worst. So that's insight that I'm delighted to offer you. That is not simply what latest discovery did I miss. That is something you might not have reflected upon um, that perhaps you should.
3: Neil deGrasse Tyson, I so appreciate you. I I love this conversation uh, and I hope you'll come back again. Hope this won't be the only visit.
4: Well, thanks for this invitation and it's great to get to meet you and know you and I, I'm, you can
3: put me on your rolodex that's fine looking forward to it i'm looking forward to it. Uh, uh be safe be well i hope uh hope you'll get out and about a little bit you're definitely gonna make me think about space differently i really appreciate what you said at the end i think you're gonna make a lot a lot of us uh think about it uh i hope more boldly so thank you for that let it go that way okay thanks take care
2: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Carlos Watson Show podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcast.